The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. MLB show. Here are your hosts, the luckiest men on the face of the earth, Chase Fedorsky and Bryce Holden. Welcome to episode 83 of the Underdog Sports Baseball Show with Bryce Holden. My name is Chase Fedorsky. It is Monday, October 12th, and we got some live baseball going on during this recording right now. Uh, so for those of you keeping tracks at home, game two of the ALCS, and yes, this is a spoiler alert for who made out in the division series. Astros are currently down 3 nothing to the Blue Jays in game two. To the Rays, Chase, to the Rays. I'm trying to think what in my brain just made me even say the Blue Jays. I'm literally staring at the Houston TV score on my computer right now. It's 5-15 on a Monday. You, you, your brain should be primed for thinking. You would think so. Maybe, maybe I'm just a night creature and we never do it. It would be ironic because you know me. I fall asleep very easily when the lights go out. But that's a, That says a lot about you, Chase. I would reevaluate that comment. What, that I fall asleep when the lights go out? If you're a night creature and you're doing that, what does that say about you in the daytime? It says I'm much more productive not working from an office environment. <laughs> Ooh, I think I burped. All that said, Razor up 3-0 in the bottom of the third of game two. Manny Margot hit a three-run homer after what was a brutal error. They charged it to Jose Altuve. It was not a great throw from second base, but G-Man Choi's motoring down first, putting down the wheels. He underthrows. Um, and then not only does Gurriel not make the scoop, but when he goes to get the ball, foot comes off the bag. Next batter, Margot, three-run homer. Also made one of the best catches I've seen in the postseason. Went over the rail at Petco for the third out of the second inning. Landed on the concrete. Stayed in the game. He's hitting right now. So credit to Manny Margot there. And with that said, we are going to go right into our first Bavada Sportsbook Pick of the Week. We're going to do some live action here. Um, for those of you who are keeping track and want to bet on this game at home, the Astros are currently plus 3.5, minus 115, plus 500. So Bryce... I know you're all about accountability, and the Astros are your team. What do you think here? Um, yeah, this is not a good. This is not a great start to the to the series for Houston. Astros plus three and a half, though. Now that the damage has kind of been done, and I should preface this by saying there's still two runners on right now with one out in the bottom of the third, but plus three and a half is not too bad. I mean, look, that their lineup's been great. They, they they have really they really flipped the switch come October, so what I expect, I mean you can get even if it's a push the rest of the way the plus three and a half would work. Yeah, that might be something uh, at the end of the inning if that line holds could be worth us throwing a little bit of cash on. I'm in, I am in. All right, we'll do. A I like that, Chase. What a great! I think we should start shows with a. I think we should start every show with a live bet opportunity when it presents itself. When it presents itself. We're running out of time to do that. But, yeah, whenever able, I say let's do it. Nothing like a good old-fashioned live bet to uh, heighten, heighten your senses. So, number 83 for the New York Yankees. Only one made his major league debut this year, and that is Debbie Garcia. So, my question for you is, 
and this is, I guess, more pertains to the Yankees because all of the smaller numbers really through zero through 20, all the good ones are either retired or off to the shelf for a while, like A-Rod's number 13. But if you're Debbie Garcia, I mean, God willing, this kid's going to be part of the Yankees' plans for years and years to come. Do you keep 83 or do you shift numbers? Or do you roll with Judge who's kept 99? There is a world of difference between 99 and 83, Chase. 99 is cool, but, you know, 83 has its perks, I guess. I'm not sure what they are, but I'm sure they exist. They're not. It's got minimal perks. Minimal perks for 83. Um, 88 would be kind of cool, the double number. I mean, if you're Debbie, you definitely want to go lower. Yeah, I mean, even in other sports, the best number 83 was probably Andre Reed. So, you know, a football Hall of Famer, but not a household name football Hall of Famer. Yeah, that's a, that's a Hall of Famer by stats. He's not a – your ab, I mean, I don't want to say Wes Welker is more uh, – especially for our generation. Oh, he wasn't even on the list I just looked at. That was a major slight to Wes Welker. I'm going to be honest. Who else was on that list? Because Wes Welker came to mind just uh, – I was thinking of – I was thinking of – Mark Clayton and Andre Reid were the top two guys on the list. I'd give Wes Welker the nod. He um, he blew one Super Bowl. He lost two other ones, but not his fault. And, you know, he was Brady's favorite target for a long time. If you were listening to us and did take Astros plus three and a half, which obviously means absolutely nothing because you're going to listen to this tomorrow when the game is over. But Lance McCullers did get out of the inning, and that three-nothing lead held. So did the line hold? The line... Is now down to two and a half. Rats. Oh, rats indeed. I guess that's that's the negatives of doing a live betting to start the podcast is it's hard to actually place the live bet while doing a podcast. Tough to execute, but, I mean, maybe if the Astros go scoreless in the top of the – you know, I think the live bet, I think we're going to have to put that idea to bed. We'll uh, fine-tune this for future episodes. Or we'll just have somebody waiting in the wings for an immediate text saying, throw this bet for us right now. Who's the biggest degenerate gambler we know to do that? Coop. Coop will be our guy. Coop's a friend of the show. He's been on a couple times. I think he'd be more than happy to do it. Your brother, since I'm paying him to do that shit anyway? Could be. Well, I'm not paying him. Uh, I am not paying him directly to do that shit. Is this why you're hiring um, friends who are going to be good workers so that they could just do trickle-down bets for us with the money they get paid from work? Um, no, no is the short answer. If I was going to elaborate a little, the thought has crossed my mind on more than a few occasions. So it would be an added perk. It would really be an added perk for me as someone who has nothing to do with the company. Yeah, but I don't want to get yelled at by the company saying, you keep hiring these guys to just place bets for you. You you do not have an assistant. No, that, that makes sense. And we'll transition out of this before either one of us say anything else that could get you into any kind of trouble at work. We mentioned the Hall of Fame before, and you and I were texting this morning. It's, it's very rare in a year that, you know, if you do a radio show, you know, we've been doing this podcast for right around two years. Year little, and a half. A little less. Year and a half. You know, I did four years of college radio where all I talked about was baseball. And for the most part, didn't really have to do many full-on tributes to baseball players who have passed. I mean, the ones who stick out in my mind, you know, Jose Fernandez passed, 
Yogi. Holiday Pass. I remember doing that one. Um, we earlier this year did Al Kaline. I believe we did Frank Robinson when he passed in 2019. Um, so the fact that in the past month we had to do tributes for Hall of Famers Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, Tom Seaver, and now we're doing two more just kind of tells you what kind of year 2020 has been for the world in general. Uh, and we'll start with the Hall of Famer who was near and dear to our hearts as Yankee fans, and that was the chairman of the board, Whitey Ford, the Yankees' all-time wins leader. Uh, he passed away Friday at the age of 91, 12 days short of what would have been his birthday. Uh, he died Thursday night, surrounded by family, and as only Whitey could do, uh, he passed away watching the Yankees' division series game against the race. It was literally a Yankee until the very end. Uh, Hal Steinbrenner had this to say, Whitey's name and accomplishments are forever stitched into the fabric of baseball's rich history. He was a treasure and one of the greatest Yankees to ever wear the pinstripes. Beyond the accolades that earned him his rightful spot within the walls of the Hall of Fame, in so many ways he encapsulated the spirit of the Yankees teams he played for and represented for nearly two, de two decades. Whitey was New York tough. Uh, 236 and 106 career record, 275 ERA, played his entire 16-year career with the Yankees, winning the Cy Young in 1961, and his 690 winning percentage is the highest of any pitcher with at least 100 victories in the modern era. Elected to the Hall of Fame in 74, second year on the ballot. Also went in with Mickey Mantle, uh, which is a fun little quirk that I actually didn't know until writing this up. Uh, before I go into Whitey's career a little bit more, uh, what was your reaction when you heard that another baseball legend, but specifically for us, a Yankee legend had passed away. It's tough. You hate to see, uh, you hate to see the legends go, especially in 2020 um, when bad news seems to just be getting compounded by more and more bad news. But when you think of Whitey Ford, it's really hard to think of anything outside or your, your first thought to almost any baseball fan is perfect game in the world series which is, oh, that's Don Larson. I was thinking of the wrong guy. But all that said, though, this does go into our theme of having to do these tributes in 2020 because even if you go outside of the Hall of Fame, we had to do one for Don Larson this year. I know. I was thinking about the Don Larson one again. Oh, I got them confused. Not so, a good showing. So Whitey made his debut July 1st, 1950. Yeah, we did lose Larson. I mean, Whitey was just – I mean, he's like a longtime Yankee legend. He's won a bunch of rings. He's – he's – um. I mean, I'm looking at his Wikipedia now. He spent two years in the Army Reserves during the Korean War. Uh, if he got those, got those two seasons back, uh, Cy Young, he's got it all. So you he mentioned that. I mean, Whitey made his debut in 1950 and went 9-1 with a 2-8-1 ERA in 20 games during his rookie season. Won the Sporting News Rookie of the Year honors. Uh, finished second in the actual voting to Red Sox first baseman Waldropo. Um, but when you look from there, I mean, Whitey – Pitched in the World Series that year, won the clinching game of the World Series, allowing two unearned runs in eight and two-thirds innings against the Phillies in game four. That was the first start of what was a tremendous World Series one for Whitey. You mentioned then the Korean War. He served the next two seasons in the Army during the Korean War. Returned to the Yankees in 1953, won 18 games in the regular season before helping the team to another championship. In 1953, the team's fifth straight title. Uh, 54, won 16 games, was selected to the first of his 10 all-star game appearances. Um, and then from there, I mean, next four World Series titles at Whitey average 16 wins, 2-4-1 ERA from 55 to 58. Yanks won rings 56 and 58. Pitched in 11 World Series during his 16 years in the Bronx, won six rings total, and his 10 World Series victories remain the most of any pitcher in history. 
61 Cy Young, Ralph Hawk takes over for Casey Stengel. Uh, he started 39 times in 1961 after starting 29 games in each of the previous three seasons, threw a career high and league high 283 innings that year, 25 and 4, 321 ERA. And you have to remember, too, when Whitey won the Cy Young, only one pitcher was getting it in both leagues. So he was the best pitcher in baseball that year. Uh, went 2-0 in the 61 World Series, throwing 14 scoreless innings, won World Series MVP honors. Again, he was pitching in the World Series 62, 63, and 64, won his last one in 1962. Uh, in the World Series overall, 10-8, and 7-2-1 ERA, and 22 career World Series starts. Also holds the mark for the most strikeouts, 34, and innings pitch, 146 in the World Series. And perhaps his best known between 60 and 62, he threw a record 33 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings in the World Series, breaking Babe Ruth's record of 29 and two-thirds. When he won his 232nd career game, passed Red Ruffing as the Yankees' all-time win leader at 65, uh, retired in 67, was a Yankees coach for a little bit, uh, first base coach in 68, pitching coach in 74 and 75, and then from there, he was done with baseball. Number 16 has been hanging in Monument Park since 1974, the same summer he was retired. Um, same year he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And if you look at the Yankees' career pitching ranks and where Whitey Ford is in it, First in innings, first in starts, first in shutouts, first in wins, second in strikeouts, uh, second in war, fourth in games played, fourth in ERA plus, sixth in complete games, and tenth in ERA. I mean, I know some people maybe throw a little bit of love to Pettit, but is there any argument that Whitey Ford isn't the best pitcher in Yankees history? No. I mean, longevity. He always got a side that people spent their whole career in pinstripes, which I be Whitey. Uh, the World Series accomplishments speak for themselves. Uh, Pettit didn't have a Cy Young to his name. I think that's big. The lack of the Cy Young is just an extra icing on icing on the cake. He's, I mean, he was the best pitcher the Yankees have ever had. There's a reason uh, his number's been retired for so long. I was going to make this point earlier. You said to wrap Reggie in bubble wrap for the rest of the year. The guy you have to wrap in bubble wrap is really Mays. Willie Mays, Hank Aaron. I was just speaking to Yankees specifically at that time. But even, I mean, Tommy Lasorda is now the oldest living Hall of Famer at 93. You know, it's Tommy just. Tommy Lasorda, I can't believe it's still alive. Tommy Lasorda making it to 93 is incredible. You know, it's just, it's been one of those years. And uh, that was only re-exemplified this morning. And before I talk about this next Hall of Famer that passed away, you know, we talk about a lot of odds at Bavada and this and that. But, you know. Before mentioning this player's name, what do you think the odds would have been that when this guy came up as a five-second second baseman, that he would go on to be what many consider the greatest second baseman in the history of baseball? I would – I mean, I looked at an ESPN list. One of the odds not good. I look – the player in question is Joe Morgan, for those listening. Uh, I saw the ESPN list this morning. I think they had they – maybe – was it Honus Wagner they had at one? Probably Rogers Hornsby, if I take a guess. Well, I yeah, I think it was it was Hornsby at one, Jackie Robinson at two. Yeah, Hornsby, Jackie Robinson, and then Joe Morgan. And you know, Joe Morgan's case, I would I would probably just take Joe Morgan. I think he's the best second baseman of ever played. I think certainly of the modern era. Uh, Joe passed away Sunday at the age of seventy-seven. Born what could, yeah, that's I mean I don't count Hornsby. Too long ago. 
Born September 19th in 1943, came up with the Houston Colt 45s in 1962. By the following year, he was in the major leagues for good and or excuse me, signed with the Colt 45 in 62. By 65, he'd become the regular second baseman for the newly christened Astros. In his first season, Morgan led the NL in walks for the first of four times and finished second of the NL Rookie of the Year vote, earned the first of his 10 All-Star Games selections in 66 and another in 70 with the Astros, establishing himself as one of the game's most versatile second basemen. But following the 71 season, the Astros, in need of power, traded Morgan and four others to the Reds in exchange for a package that included first baseman Lee May. And immediately after the trade, Reds manager Sparky Anderson told GM Bob Hausman, you just won the pennant for the Cincinnati Reds. Um, To be honest with you, I would say there's very few trades that had a bigger impact in the history of baseball than Joe Morgan to the Reds, given what the big red machine became immediately after acquiring him. Would you say he was the most important member of the big red machine or Johnny Bench? Or Pete Rose? That's you. It's hard to say because you just mentioned that team. You know, Bench and Morgan, for one lineup to have – two players that you can make a very strong case are the best ever at their position just shows how unbelievable those Reds teams were. I would say bench only because he was the homegrown talent drafted by the team, one rookie of the year. And, you know, Morgan had his own uniqueness at second base. You know, some of those power numbers that bench put up as a catcher while winning 10 gold gloves and makes the stake is maybe the best defensive catcher ever. I would still go bench, but you know, you're comparing one, a one B one C there. It's, the best catcher ever, the best second baseman ever, and the all-time hit king. And that's before you even mentioned Tony Perez. Yeah, those um, that big red machine. That was they were certainly a machine. But I'm just looking over the Joe Morgan stats. So yeah, I think I, what I mean, it, it's amazing. I'll get into that right now. First I just game. think his case as the best second. I I would probably say that I would agree with what you said. I would say Johnny Bench, best catcher of all time. Joe Morgan, the best second baseman of all time. The thing, the thing with Joe Morgan, too, is, you know, in his era when walks weren't necessarily appreciated, he was still recognized as a superstar. If Joe Morgan puts up those numbers today, all respect to Mike Trapp, Joe Morgan might be the best player in baseball from the Stathead community's perspective. And even on the back end of his career, say what would have been his 20th season when he was in Philadelphia, he was a major part of a team that made the World Series. Yeah, two home runs in that 83 World Series. I mean, his first year with the Reds, 293, 16 homers, 78 steals, or 73 ribbies, 58 steals, all careers highs to that point. Right away leads the NL and runs with 122, 115 walks, and a 417 on base. Uh, And you talk about a peak, 72 to 77, which includes 75 and 76 Reds World Series wins and both of his back-to-back MVPs. Uh, He averaged 113 runs. 21 homers, 84 ribbies, 118 walks, and 59 steals a year. Won five straight gold gloves from 73 to 77. Uh, And you look at those two MVP years, uh, he hit 327 with 17 homers, 94 ribbies, and 67 steals in 75. And in 76, 320, 27 homers, 111 ribbies, and 60 steals. He was only the fifth second baseman in the NL at that time to drive in more than 100 runs and also led the league in on-base percentage and slugging in 76. Chase, you want to talk about a fun name? You know who won the NL Rookie of the Year in 65? Who? Jim Lefebvre. Huh. 
That'll be a conversation I'll have to have with my dad yes, uh, later on about his. L-E-F-E-B-V-R-E. Lefebvre. Not a guy that I'm super familiar with. Um, Big Red Machine, Game 7 of the 75 World Series, drove in the game-winning run, scoring Ken Griffey Sr. on a single in the se- single to center in the top of the ninth. Clinch since his first world title in 35 years at that point. Uh, led the on-base percentage, led the league in on-base percentage four of his eight years with the Reds and drew at least 110 walks each season from 72 to 77. Uh, Johnny Bench said, Joe wasn't just the best second baseball, second baseman in baseball history. He was the best player I ever saw and one of the best people I've ever known. He's a dedicated father and a husband and not a day that won't, not a day won't go by where I won't think about his wisdom and friendship. Uh, I mean, so you mentioned, you asked me, Morgan or Bench, who's more important? I mean, Johnny Bench is saying Joe Morgan is the best player he's ever seen. Uh, at the end of his 22-year career, also ended up in uh, San Francisco, Philadelphia, and Oakland at the end. 1650 runs, 689 steals, drew 1,865 walks, which is the fifth all-time. At the time of his retirement, his 268 home runs were a record for a second baseman, uh, as were his games played at 2,649. He was known for flapping his left arm while waiting a pitch in the batter's box. 2,517 hits, owns the Reds record for steals at 406. Um, And you mentioned it before, he goes to the Astros in 80, helps them win the NL West, and then from there on helps be a major part of that Phillies 83 World Series team. And um, after his retirement and what our generation might know Joe Morgan best from, he began broadcasting for the Reds in 85. um, But from 90 to 2010, he was the original crew for Sunday Night Baseball, him and John Miller. Called games for 20 years, first ballot Hall of Famer in 1990, later served as the vice chairman of the board of directors of the Hall of Fame, uh, and some stats that kind of encompass Joe Morgan overall. The first one to Ryan Slater, uh, seasons with at least 50 extra base hits, 50 steals, and 100 base on balls. Joe Morgan has four, and the other 19,901 players in baseball history have zero. Uh, the only two seasons between 1915 and 1984 where a player had 300, 400, 560 steals were both Joe Morgan. His 100.5 war is the most by second baseman since 1990, the 31st most ever and the 21st most ever amongst position players. Um, but perhaps why he might have been even underrated in his day, he walked 850 more times than he struck out in his career. Uh, and you said it to me, plain and simple, you know, right now up in baseball heaven, they got a hell of a team from 2020. They do. We went over that this morning also. The, uh, that Brock Morgan K-line, one, two, three, at the top of the order is pretty good. I mean, you give me that one, two, three in a rotation of Seaver, Gibson, and Whitey Ford, I'll take that team over any. I mean, you even said, and I kind of agree, Al K-line, even in a 60-game season, hitting three behind Lou Brock, probably the second best base deal ever behind Ricky Henderson, and Joe Morgan, the prototypical two-hitter, Al Kaline's going to have 150 RBIs before you even step on the field. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Uh, but it's still tough. It's all, we, we had some fun there, but it's tough when you lose all these legends. Our thoughts go out to both the Yankees and Reds families, but more specifically to the Ford and Morgan families. Two greats gone, and hopefully we don't have to do this again for the foreseeable future. Uh, but transitioning into the current game, News that was surprising yet unsurprising at the same time today. Uh, Rick Renteria is out as the manager of the Chicago White Sox. They announced today that they have agreed to part ways following the 2020 season, saying the status of the coaching staff will be determined moving forward in a consultation with the team's next manager. Um, which, real quick, overarching statement here, 
I love the agreed to part ways statement because it's such bullshit because there's no way Rick Renteria would have ever willingly left this White Sox team that is so clearly on the rise and set up for success for years to come. Yes, it was. Yeah, Rick Renteria did not look at this World Series ready lineup and World Series ready pitching staff, at least starting rotation and say uh, that it's his time to walk away. So Renteria just completed his fourth season as a White Sox skipper, leading the White Sox to a tie for second place in the Central Division this year. They qualified for the playoffs but fell to Oakland 2-1 in the wild card series after a 23-6 run to end the season. Four seasons at the helm – or excuse me, not a 23-6 run to end the season, but at one point they were 23-6 and to get back into playoff contention. Uh, four seasons, 236 and 309, and so – Perhaps even more surprisingly, the White Sox also uh, moved on from pitching coach Don Cooper, who had been there since 2002. Uh, I read wow. that. Good for him. I read, so, that, I read that 25% of all White Sox pitchers ever pitched under Don Cooper. So, interesting there. Uh, Renteria was hired in October to replace. That Don- 05 pitching staff is nice. That's a good team. What was that? I mean, Burley, Garland, Contreras, El Duque? Yeah. I mean, guys who are not Hall of Famers, but really good pitchers for a really long time. And he uh, got the most out of them that year. So Renteria was the manager of the Cubs in 2014, 73 and 89 record there. Holds the dubious distinction now of being fired by both the Cubs and the White Sox in Chicago. Uh, in his first three, three seasons, 67 and 95, 62 and 100, 72 and 89. Uh, and in 2018, the White Sox announced that they'd agreed to a contract extension for Renteria, but there were no specifics at the time. Um, and again, up until 2020, the White Sox had not recorded a winning season since 2012 when they finished 85 and 77. This year, 35 and 25, but they went 3 and 12 in their last 15 games, lost home field advantage for the playoffs, and after winning game run of the wild card round against the Athletics, they then dropped two straight, with Renteria most criticized for pulling game three starter Dane Dunning after 15 pitches and four batters. They ended up using nine pitchers in that game and got bounced by the A's. And White Sox GM Rick Hahn talking to reporters Monday indicated the team would look for a manager who could take it to the next level. Ultimately, he said, I think the best candidate for, or the ideal candidate is going to be someone who has experience with a championship organization in recent years, recent October experience with a championship organization. So let's just say this right now, Hinch or Cora, who's the favorite for the White Sox? Um, well, if you get rid of the word recent, I would love. You know, can I go off the board? Sure. I think they should bring him back. I think that Ozzie Guillen should make his return to the White Sox. So it's funny you say that because while they didn't reveal any candidates they're going to interview, the one candidate that they said they will not be interviewing is Ozzie Guillen. So you can rule that out. That's so – how do you not – first of all, who doesn't love Ozzie? Look, we love Ozzie as fans because we don't have to deal with him day to day. I would imagine, though – and they would know better than most because he – did lead them to the World Series in 2005, but it did not end super well. He is a very volatile personality. I'm not sure they want to go down that road again, especially with such a young team. Uh, give, give, uh, what's Ozzy up to? What he, he, he does TV. He does uh, he's a TV analyst for the White Sox, studio guy. Hates Nick Swisher. Chance the Rapper votes for Ozzy Guillen to manage the White Sox. All right, that's got to count as something. So before we get to Hinch, let's start with Cora. I mean, again, young guy, lottery. Yeah, Ozzy Guillen, he's, uh, he's such a perfect fit for this job, too. Oh, he's not getting it. But between Cora and Hinch, I um, – Well, well let, me, let me ask you another I, question. I would go – I would pick – I would try and get Cora if I was Chicago. 
So Cora used to play for the White Sox. I think the Red Sox are going to open him back with open arms. So let's start with another question. With Cora, what's more appealing to you going back to Boston or starting fresh in Chicago with this team? I mean, the fact that Cora is going to be looked at, at for, are we assuming Cora will be at least given an interview for this White Sox job? I don't see a situation where they wouldn't. I, I think Ken Rosenthal compared the situation to when Renteria got bounced by the Cubs, you know, successful year. We compared it to Kenny Atkinson with the Nets where you're bringing in, you know. The- no, I actually think Brett Brown's a better comparison. They just didn't wait for the postseason failures. Yeah, and I think even with Brett Brown now, it's a similar thing where there's experienced winners on the market, and that's why they made the move. So I don't think they make this move unless they think they could get Hinchacora. Um, or Ozzy. Or Ozzy. Uh, to me, I think Cora goes back to Boston, but I think this will be a hell of a landing spot for AJ Hinch to be back in baseball. The thing with Cora, if, if teams on paper, this White Sox job is much better. I think no real, no doubt in my mind, if I was, had my pick of these jobs, the Chicago job is great. Um, and if, unless if Cora is super comfortable in Boston, which he might be, then he should take this one. Do you think if Cora is back in Boston, then that Hinch becomes the instant favorite? Well, I mean, based on the description of recent postseason success, then that would be Hinch. So coming into the day, and again, this is a report from Bob Nightingale, so take this with the biggest grain of salt that you can find. Um, But the guy he mentioned for me – would have been the biggest Bavada long shot possible of anyone to take this job. But according to Nightingale, they are going to try to interview him to bring him in. What would you think if the next manager of the Chicago White Sox was Tony La Russa? I was thinking that just because he, he's managed there before. So, uh, you know, he, he might just be too old. That's what I was going to say. Look, I'd give them credit, but it would seem like a little bit too much of going for the big name hire to reset the course. I mean, Tony La Russa, four or five most successful Major League Baseball managers in the history of the game. It's just absolutely, absolutely it's trending sure, now towards sabermetrics, analytics, this and that. And if you're Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams and you're going to hire Tony La Russa, you have to be very comfortable then knowing that your team may not be taking that direction the next few years. That, uh, that doesn't seem right to me. I mean, if they're going to do, if they're going to bring back a former manager, it, it should be Ozzy. We're all in on the Ozzy train, even though he's the only candidate that who has concretely been ruled out so far. Maybe we can get enough fan outrage and demand to give Ozzy his second run as the manager of the White Sox. I mean, there's you, me, and Chance the Rapper. What more do they need? I mean, that's a trio I would go to war with any day. Yes, sir. So one more opening that I want to ask you about, and then we'll recap the postseason, is Dick Jerry Reiser called Ozzy Guillen this morning to tell him he will not be. I I guess you got to respect that he's getting ahead of the game. Everybody wants Ozzy Guillen to be his new manager. I I guess not. (laughs) Everyone about the people. It's. I mean, I'm just trying to think other outside-the-box candidates. You know what? There really aren't that many outside. Buck Showalter? I'll throw one more name, and if they don't want a guy, if they're okay hiring a first-time manager, but a guy who has 
especially given his family pedigree, maybe more experience than anybody else who's out there outside of Tony La Russa. Uh, and that would be Sandy Alomar Jr. Played most of his career in the AL Central with the Indians, took over for Terry Francona as manager, obviously has the ties with the Latin American community, which make up a huge part of at least the White Sox offensive core. Uh, I think it's going to be Hinch and Cora, but I think at a minimum they'll have to sit down with Alomar and give him some real thought. Will they look at Canerco? I don't think it would be Canerco. This is going to be surprising. I think, and again, this is a team that already went with the we're not going to hire anyone with experience route with Robin Ventura, and it worked out fair at best. Um, I do think if they go that route, one guy to look at that I was reading would be um, TV guy A.J. Brzezinski. People love to hire catchers, um, and he's one of those guys who's known as a piece of shit elsewhere, but when he is with you in the dugout, he's a guy you want to fight for. I think they need to – I think Hinch and Core are great because it's the perfect balance between young and experience. But if they were going to really go outside the box, I could see AJ getting a look. It's not a bad call. He does kind of fit the box – check the boxes for that market in particular. So one more opening I want to ask you about. Uh, the Reds, Dick Williams, who was the president of baseball operations, uh, he let them know that – he let the Reds know that the 2020 season was going to be his last as the head of the front office – uh, he's 49 years old, but he has a company, North American Properties, that he wants to be more involved with. Family's still involved in the Reds' ownership group, uh, but he's got four young children, wants to spend more time with them. Uh, Nick Kroll is going to continue as the team's GM. I actually had to do a double take there and make sure it wasn't Nick Kroll. Could you imagine if Nick Kroll was running a baseball team? I think Bauer would like that. If nothing else, Bauer and Nick Kroll would be an amazing combination. Uh, Williams worked in the Reds baseball operations department for 15 years. Last four, he was the head of the department. He was GM in 1960, or G, named GM in 2016, having worked under Wayne Kritsky and Walt Jockety, uh, was tasked with leading the team's rebuilding process after their playoff appearances in 2010, 12, and 13. This year, they ended their seven-year playoff drought, uh, but they were swept out from the Braves in the wild card round. Some good moves, some not good moves on his end throughout his tenure, but the main reason I want to ask you this is where would you rank this job in terms of openings now, uh, given that the Angels, Phillies, and Reds all have openings in running their baseball ops departments? It's probably behind those top, those first two, just because of uh, spending limitations. As far as on-field product, I think they have the best roster. Of the, uh, the, Angel, the Angels should have the best roster. So I'd probably go Angels, Phillies, Reds. I think it depends what you're looking for. I think if you're looking for long-term upside, it's the Angels because their roster, at least offensively, needs no explanation. But if you take this job and Trevor Bauer somehow says in advance, yes, I'm going to be back, and you go into a full year with Bauer, Castillo, and Sonny Gray and what should be a solid bounce-back lineup, this is an attractive opening. And, again, who knows? They might just go with Crawl as the GM and have nobody over him. But another uh, pretty interesting opening – in the baseball ops department for a team that at least on the surface has the core to be competitive for the next couple of years. The NL central, I think is going to be wide open. Uh, if they bring Bauer out back, you know, we said it, I think a week or two ago, they to me become the instant favorites in the central next year. Yeah, that's, um, I, I Cincinnati, as far as livable cities, not my cup of tea. <laughs> um, it's not, it's not great, but, um, I think you ever see that old Sam Weish clip where uh, he, uh, the Bengals fans are throwing a bunch of garbage on the field and he grabs the mic and goes, you don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. 
That's I've pretty not, funny. but it sounds great. Uh, so it's better than Cleveland, according to Sam Weish. Um, great skyline, uh, skyline chili. It's kind of a good novelty item. Wouldn't want to make it a uh, foundation piece in anyone's diet. But I would say the same thing about cheesesteaks. Okay. All is to say, I like that stadium in Cincinnati a lot. I mean, it is the Great American Ballpark. Is that still the name? Yeah. Yeah, never, never, never been to Cincinnati, but another interesting opening. Um, and the last thing that I want to get to before we get into the postseason is this is going to be a crazy offseason in terms of free agency. Uh, we've seen the owners do some penny pinching in the middle of the past few years, and obviously with the pandemic and no live games, the pockets of owners have supposedly been hurt tremendously. I'll, I'll look at the video after the podcast. Don't worry. I see that you sent it to me. I see you have a smirk on your face. Don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. They both start with the C. But you don't live in Cleveland. You live in Cincinnati. No garbage on the field. So free agency. Our fans back. So free agency this offseason. Uh, they announced that the qualifying offer amount has been set this offseason and actually rose $1.1 million from last year to $18.9 million, which is a record. And again, this is the average of the top 125 major league contracts this year, uh, 125 major league contracts. And if you get a qualifying offer and you accept, you're locked in for $18.9 million. Uh, if you decline and you sign with another team, your team gives up draft pick compensation uh, based on how much you spend, $58 million or more, uh, and the revenue sharing and luxury taxes status of the team losing the players. Uh, so real quick, I'm going to go through some eligible free agents, and you just say yes or no if you think they're going to get the qualifying offer and if they should accept. So I will start with Trevor Bauer. He'll get it. He sh- he'll get it and will not accept it. Nor I, should he. I agree with you on that front. Uh, Marcus Stroman with the Mets, I don't think he gets the offer because of, fair, unfair or not, the sour taste he left in a lot of fans' mouths opting out of the season. Um, but I do think if he got the offer, if I was Marcus Stroman having not pitched last year, I would have accepted. Yeah, if you can get 19 mil to prove yourself after taking the year off, they're, uh, that, that they're worst place to fall. So here's an interesting one. Liam Hendricks, uh, top five closer in baseball. is going to be the top closer on the market. Uh, but, again, $18.9 million for a closer. I mean, we've seen the big deals given to Kimbrell, Wade Davis, Chapman, Jansen in the past few years. I would say none of those teams are loving the return on their investment. Uh, and the A's notoriously cheap. Do you think they at least extend the offer, knowing that if Hendricks leaves, they then at least get draft pick compensation in return? I, I don't even think they take the risk. Oakland is not a team that's going to shell out 20 mil for a closer. And um, they, I, I just, it's tough. Does he deserve it? Absolutely. Do you uh, think Hendricks would accept knowing what the market's going to be? Yes, he would accept. I mean, Real Muto, Springer, and Ozuna, I don't even think we have to ask because I think the answer is yes across the board, and I don't think any of them are going to accept. Ozuna, fantastic. Year. Still going. The Ozuna season isn't over yet. Uh, Springer's st- season's still going, but Springer's looking to cash in big. Ozuna, same way. Real no. Muto's about to reset the market. And, yes, so three guys who will get the offer and decline the offer, and it won't be a detriment. All right, I've got three other guys before we get to the Yankees, and I think these are all interesting cases. Marcus Simeon, if you're the A's, do you hope he bounces back, or do you just say screw it and let him hit free agency? 
I would you have to I would give him the offer. That's a premium guy at a premium position. Um I don't think he takes it either. I think he may try to work something out with Oakland long term. So, so take your whole thought process and apply it to another shortstop in Philadelphia, Didi Gregorius, yes or no? Didi had a great year though. Didi had a much better year than Simeon. Didi might decline that offer and try and lock up long term. The only thing with Didi and Simeon, he's got to remember the 2021 free agency class is Lindor, Story, I believe Correa and Seager. So do you take that for sure money now, or do you decline and just try to lock in cash knowing you're going to be at best for the fifth best free agent at your position the following year? My guess is Didi. Finishes the question. I think they're both going to stay with their teams. I think Didi's likes with Didi, Didi Girardi, great season. Philly's going to spend. I think Didi is more likely to have a long-term contract in Philadelphia. Uh, prior to the start of next season. All right. And now we'll get to our Yankees. If we are betting men, which we are, who would you say has the better Bavada odds to get the qualifying offer, Masahiro Tanaka or DJ LeMahieu, or both? I mean, I think they both get the offer. They both should be getting the offer just because you can't risk losing either of those guys for nothing. But I'm pretty sure both will be back in pinstripes come 21. So you think decline and resign? I think that's what it's going to be. I'll throw in one more for the Yankees. Do you think there's any shot that the Yankees give James Paxton the qualifying offer or way too much to hope that he bounces back and becomes the ace that everyone's hoped he could be for years and years if he stays healthy? I think they will give Paxton the qualifying offer because there is uh, – Bovada will have the odds at astronomical that have returns. And you, you, need a, you need an arm that you know and you can trust in that rotation going after Cole, presumably Tanaka, and I mean, I don't, what, what do we expect from Sevi at this point? You don't think between Cole, Tanaka, if he comes back, Sevi, Devi, Montgomery, and Herman when he comes back, that that's going to be enough, or do you think they roll the dice and lock in? Because $19 million is going to be a lot of money next year. I trust Paxton so much more than I trust Devi, Montgomery, I mean, I almost trust him more than Severino at this point. Um, and every other – I forgot the other option. Oh, Herman, no, no chance. No dice on Herman. I don't think the Yanks gave him the offer, but I do think they try to work out a slightly longer deal at less of an AAV. Like, uh, what, two, like two for 30? Something along those lines. Maybe like three for 42, 43. Just because Paxton has never stayed healthy. So I think for him, you know, he low-key isn't that young. He's in his early 30s. So I think for him getting money – is also important. But the guy who I meant to say before, and I was staring at him in just space, by far the most interesting case in all of this, because he's so integral to his team, was arguably the best hitter in the American League last year, but he's 40 and is a designated hitter. What do you do if you're the Minnesota Twins with Nelson Cruz? Because you cannot afford to lose him if you're the Twins. I think you have to give him I almost kind of like Nelson Cruz on a qualifying offer for the rest of his career. Uh, just keep giving him one-year deals. Well, you actually can give – once the player's gone on a qualifying offer for the team, you can't give it to him again. So, But I agree with the sentiment of you just keep going year to year if you're Nelson Cruz and the Twins. I mean, as he's still – I mean, he's on pace to hit 40 homers a year. Um, until he stops doing that, I would stop – I would – I just keep paying him. 
I would right. say this is another example where you say maybe we don't want to go one for 18.9, but let's give Nelson Cruz two for 30. Do you want to, I mean, if, if the, bot, the bottom will presumably fall out at some point, do you want to be on the hook for 15 mil uh, with this guy come 22? No, but at the same time, I think for 15 million, that's the risk you take just because not only is he their best offensive producer, but he's the unquestioned leader of that team, in my opinion. Um, I mean, you're, you make a good case, but I would, I would, I, I think we agree. He gets the offer. All right. So to wrap this up, I'm going to make my own Bavada over under here, four and a half free agents that accept qualifying offers this year over under knowing that that would be a record. This is the year to accept the qualifying offer. I feel like a lot of guys are going to have these prove it and you want the salary cap to bounce back after a season with fans. And I know there's no cap in baseball, but owners are don't love spending, uh, especially when they get zero gate receipt for the entire season. So I would go dip back into the market next year if possible, despite the loaded free agent class. All right, I agree with you there. So now we're going to wrap up the division round, the Elite Eight of the baseball playoffs, if you will. And we'll just go with the one that hit it close to home. Uh, the Rays eliminated the Yankees 3-2. In five games, we'll start with game three. Masahiro Tanaka versus Charlie Morton. Uh, Randy Rosarina homered for the surge straight game. Kevin Kiermeyer and Michael Perez also went deep for the Rays. Beat the Yankees 8-4 Wednesday. Uh, really the only bright, side, bright spot for the Yanks that game. Stanton hit a two-run homer off of Shane McClanahan to center field in the eighth inning. He became the first player with a home run in each of his team's first five games of a single postseason. And up to that point, six homers and 13 ribbies in the postseason. Uh, Tanaka, again, uh, this is two postseason starts in a row. We would always say Tanaka time. This is the guy you want with the ball. Just didn't have it. Uh, Kiermaier hits a three-run shot with no outs in the fourth to make it 4-1. A Rose Arena had homered earlier in the game. Um, and then from there, you know, the floodgates kind of just kept on pouring out. 8-4 final. Charlie Morning got the win, held the Yankees to two runs, one earned, and four hits in five innings, struck out six, and walked two. Won his fifth straight postseason decision, and if he wins today, which is what it's trending towards, it would be a sixth straight. Tanaka took the loss, five runs, eight hits, and four-plus innings, struck out four, and walked run one. And really, to me, the biggest narrative of this game was the Yankees just couldn't bring in any runs. They loaded the bases twice in the third innings, got only a sack fly by Aaron Judge, uh, Hicks hit a ribby double in the fifth, but that was the extent of the scoring there. Uh, did you have any takeaways from game three? I know you and I were texting. I was not feeling good going into game four after this, but. We watched game three together, Chase. We did watch game three together. You're right. And my takeaway now is my takeaway then, seeing the Yankee pinstripes at, at a stadium other than Yankee Stadium. It's weird. I agree with you. It set me off the entire game. I had a bad feeling from that moment on. Which then brought us to game four. Um, I'm going to be honest. I bet on the Rays. I thought the Rays were going to close it out. Uh, it was going to be a bullpen game. Ryan Yarborough comes out of the pen and pitched solid enough, um, but left down 4-1 with one out in the six. Luke Voigt and Glaber both hit home runs. And Monty, Jordan Montgomery and three relievers, uh, they combined on a three-hitter. Yanks beat the Rays. 5-1. It was Voigt's first homer in the postseason. He led off the second by driving a 1-0 pitch from Rays opener Ryan Thompson into the second deck. His first career postseason home runs. Uh, Glaber, first pitch you saw from Ryan Yarborough, three-run homer, 4-1 with one out in the sixth. Uh, and then from there, Chad Green, Zach Britton, and Chapman 
They closed the door, combined for five hitless innings of relief, retiring 15 of the last 16 batters. Monty, four innings in his first appearance on September 24th, held the race to one run and three hits, struck out four, walked three. Uh, the big moment in this game, Tampa loaded the bases in the third, but just got one run on Brandon Lowe's. Brandon Lowe's, fielder's choice. Um, Coming out of this game, I was feeling really good for the Yanks. Uh, Garrett Cole was getting the ball in game five on three days rest. Tyler Glass now was taking the ball on two days rest. It was a rematch of game five of the ALDS between the Astros and the Rays. Cole Glass now, round two. Um, but before we get there, any takeaways from game four? The takeaways from game four are moot since we lost game five. I know, but, you know, people still need to know. Those are my takeaways. That is yeah. a takeaway. <laughs> the takeaway is it meant nothing. I mean, game five, you get into game five because that's where the takeaways come. All right, so I'm going to lead off by saying uh, game five, Garrett Cole takes the ball on three days rest. And this series, Garrett Fish Cole well. was worth every dollar that we paid him. I mean, he's a $324 million man, and he lived up to the hype. Goes five and a third, only gives up the scoreless – or only gives up a home run – to Austin Meadows in the fifth. Uh, he had actually gone four and two-thirds, no-hit innings prior to that. It's out of a huge bases loaded jam with a strikeout in the first. Um, overall, Cole, five and thirds, struck out nine. He did everything right. Glass now on the flip side, two days rest, two and two-thirds, didn't allow any hits. Correa, um, Homer, 3-1 raise. Plus three and a half was looking real good. Fucking Correa, man. All the guy does is hit. Not a guy you'd want to be competing against in the free agent market at D.D. Gregorius, at Marcus Simeon. So we're back to the Yanks, though. Um, and then from there, it is 1-1 heading into the eighth. And you couldn't have drawn this up any better for your baseball writer. Uh, Mike Rousseau, who Chapman threw one-on-one near his head on September 1st in the ninth inning. Bench is cleared from there. Epic 10-pitch at bat. And he hits a homer. Hits it off of Chapman for the second year in a row. The Yankees lose on an Aroldis Chapman allowed home run. Last year was Altuve's game ending drive in game six of the ALCS. Um, Cole, the this, this, the question, here's the question. Wait, wait, I just want to give one little bit of love to Garrett Cole, and then you can grow me on the eggs. Uh, Cole became the fastest pitcher ever to 100 postseason strikeouts. Postseason strikeouts in 79 innings. Kershaw, our boy, was the previous fastest with 80. Um, this was a debilitating loss for the Yankees. The Rays were celebrating the Empire State of Mind in New York, New York. But ultimately, the better team won, and now I throw it over to you. I, well, just, I do think the better team won. Point two. And this is the big one. When you think of a role as Chapman, I don't care what order these three things come to mind, but these are the first three things that have to come to mind. Ajay Davis, Jose Altuve, Mike Purcell. I mean, and the most frustrating is of those three home runs, like Altuve, even last year was still an all-star, but Mike Purcell and Rajay Davis are by no means household names. I mean, can this guy just not get it done? Is it, is it that simple? That Chapman just cannot get it done when it matters most? Um, I think point blank in 2016, and my dad's been saying this for years, that World Series run with the Cubs, Joe Madden knew he wasn't coming back, and Chapman hasn't been the same since then. He pitched more in that postseason out of the pen than he ever has in his life. And I think it shows. He can dial it up from one-on-one when needed. But, yeah, this is a guy who it seems like does not live for the big moment. It is two years in a row now that the Yankees have been bounced with Chapman on the mound. 
Um, and look, there were some good silver linings from this series. I mean, Stanton, obviously, if any Yankee fan ever complains about Stanton, at least until next year when he gets hurt again, just shut the fuck up. He put the team on his back this entire postseason. Um, Which is great to see. Stanton Judge this postseason is what you expect from Stanton Judge. I don't. Well, I think Judge underperformed. If anything, if anything, I was actually going to say the other high point was I always love to give Aaron Hicks shit because he just walks and never hits the ball. Hicks looked phenomenal all postseason. I was thinking more Judge, despite struggling, he hit that leap. He hit that uh, that homer on the top of the first off Bieber set the tone for that series, and he was the guy who homered in Game Seven or Game Five against Tampa. He's and I also one. think it needs to be noted um, a lot of people ourselves included, give Booney shit for betting, putting Brett Gardner in there instead of Clint. Cole's last batter of the game, um, I think it was a Rose Arena. I mean, he won, he won out to left that Brett brought back. I don't know if Clint makes that catch, to be 100% honest. Probably not. And Gardner's in there for a reason. He does make pitchers work, if nothing else. So, you know, a lot of takeaways. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, we say the better team won, and I mean it. The Rays, I just think top to bottom, were a better constructed team. Uh, the Yanks, uh, and again, the no Yanks st- lost because of what they, what they, um, their pitching staff keeps giving up homers at inopportune times. It's been a problem that's plagued the Yankees franchise really since that 019. Two years in a row at the deadline, Cash doesn't make a move for a pitcher, and it's bitten us in the ass two years in a row. Um, you know, anyone who's calling for Booney to get fired, it's just not worth it because no matter what, whoever they bring in, they're just going to be a patsy for Cashman and the rest of the front office. I think the same decisions are made. So it is what it is. If you want to complain about his bullpen management, you know, Chapman comes in with two outs in the seventh. I don't know if that would have made a difference versus him starting the eighth, but that's my one point. Um, but I think the biggest takeaway of the series is I think Gary Sanchez's time in pinstripes is over. Yeah, he, um, you love it when he hits the homer, but you, he get, if you start Gary Sanchez, you are giving away three at-bats a game. Yeah, and that means he's he's striking out three times a game. And he was, and not even they weren't even attacking him with off speed pitches. They were just throwing fastballs by him. They were saying Gary hit it and he couldn't do it. I mean, at the end of the day, five game postseason series. You know, if Higgy's in there four or five games, that's your guy going forward. Ball's a better game too. You can catch the ball behind the plate. Uh, The thing with Gary, he's. I mean, you love it when he runs into one out of every five and puts in the seats, but strikeouts and double plays are all you get out of this guy. It'll be interesting. James McCann's going to be a free agent. He's a former all-star catcher, a little more consistent than Gary. Um, and, again, he's probably not back in Chicago because of Grandal. Wouldn't hate pairing him and Higashioka together next year. But, yeah, I mean, Gary, because he's in arbitration again, we could be looking at Gary getting non-tendered, not even necessarily traded. Do we – does Bovada have the JT Riamuto to the Yankee odds yet? Because at, at what point does that become a real possibility? I don't think it's a realistic possibility. I, I don't. I think if they spend money, maybe it's for Bauer, but I don't. I don't see them breaking the bank for a position player. Bauer's been hilarious on Twitter all week with that. Just trolling fans left and right, take, saying, "Oh, I'm in this city. I'm in that city." He's like, "Oh, yeah, it's, he's a, he's a funny guy." One interesting point that Joel Sherman brought up. You know, you're going to re-sign DJ probably on a multi-year deal. Well, I guess this is a two-part question. One is, do you think Glaber Torres defensively can be a major league shortstop? Um, I'd like to say yes, but 
I have no evidence behind that. So if you decide that Glaber is going to need to be a second baseman, then you're going to have to move TJ over to first. Do you sell high on Luke Voigt and try to trade him for an arm? I, I personally couldn't bring myself to do it because of my attachment as a fan, but I do think it's an interesting point Sherman makes that has to at least be considered in the offense. No, you have to consider it. That's definitely a way to easily upgrade your team because you would get some – get. I mean, he's the home run king. Uh, but I think the Yankees are more than comfortable with the Glaber because what he, with what he can be. At, I mean, and you put him at short. I mean, the defensively – I mean, his upside at the plate is so great. Yeah, I mean, I personally, with, with what he can do offensively and you put him in between two plus defenders and DJ and Gio at third, I think you can make it work. I mean, Andahar is the guy that they're going to – Also, let's not kid ourselves. As much as we love him, Derek Jeter was never really a gold glove shortstop, even though he won five of them. He won five? Won five. Yeah. The reaction says it all. <laughs> I thought it was three. Let me, let, me, let me fact check myself real quick. Might be five silver sluggers. It's five silver sluggers and five gold gloves. Interesting food for thought. So – I mean, you can work around. I mean, they, they're going to rock with Glaber. They'll rock with Glaber, at least for now, until he does something uh, monumentally bad in the field. All right, we can talk about the Yankees' rest of the show, but we got a few more series to recap. So, your Astros, they take care of business, eliminate the A's 3-1. Game three, Christian Javier and Jesus Lazardo. Uh Ramon Laureano rips a double as the A's get a pair of sack flies in the eighth to rally past the Astros 9-7 on Wednesday and avoid elimination. Chad Pinder tied the game with a three-run homer in the seventh before Sean Murphy hit the go-ahead sack fly in the eighth. Prior to this game, Houston's bullpen had stifled Oakland in the first two games with seven shutout innings of one-hit relief. Pinder ended that dominance. Uh, Houston led 7-4 when Marcus Simeon and Tommy Listella then had back-to-back singles off Josh James in the seventh. Pinder goes deep, and then from there, the game changes. Uh, Liam Hendricks, again, we mentioned it before, top free agent of the mark, top free agent closer, uh, three dominant innings of one-hit scores relief, only through 37 pitches. Um, Came, got into a bit of a jam. Correa singled, leading off the bottom of the eighth. Kyle Tucker reached on a catcher's interference on Murphy. Uh, but then from there, Gurriel pops out. Diaz advances the runners with a ground out. Pinch hitter Josh Reddick struck out, smashes bat on the ground, and breaking it over at knee. Uh, in the fifth inning, Houston put up a five spot, took a 7-4 lead, sent 10 runners to the plate, but again, couldn't get the job done. And Losardo and Urquidy, the Astros starter. I don't know why I had Christian Javier. Those notes were clearly out of date. Um, they both allowed four runs on five hits and four in the third innings, which led us to games four. Zach Greinke starting despite an arm injury against everyone's favorite Frankie Montas. And it just shows why Carlos Correa may be the playoff gamer of our generation. He had a go ahead three run homer and drove in five runs after. I mean, what, who are the options? Him or Springer? Yeah. Or Altuve. It's also interesting this series. And if I said this last week, I apologize, but Correa, Bregman, Gurriel, Altuve, and Springer after this series will have played the most games ever in the postseason for a quintuplet of teammates. Is that the word, quintuplet? Is it five? Yeah, it comes after quartet. Yeah, then that's the word. He's jump out to an early 3 nothing lead. That's, that is it. I, that's really interesting to me. So none of the Yankees – no five Yankees uh, – Nope. I guess they had Mariano and uh, Edit as part of their core. So the Astros and A's combined for 24 homers, 12 each. There weren't two guys that stuck around long enough with Bernie, Jeter, Posada? 
just telling you what the facts said. I believe the facts. I always trust the facts. You have to. They're facts for a reason. This Astros team has gone deep in a lot of series. The Yankees of those eras took care of business pretty quickly. They were, they were good. 24 homers, the most ever in a postseason series of five games or fewer. Uh, the Oakland bullpen had a 6-2-7 ERA in the series, allowing six earned runs Thursday. Uh, Loriano hits a pair of homers, including a three-run shot in the second. A's get the early 3-0 lead. It was their fourth straight game with an early lead. Uh, but then from there, Michael Brantley, two-run homer. Correa, three-run homer. Loriano then hits a homer in the fifth to cut it to 5-4, but Montas couldn't uh, withstand Houston's offense in the fourth. Astros sent 10 batters to the plate, scored five innings, or scored five runs from there. Uh, Brantley added a solo shot in the fifth, Altuve two-run blast in the seventh. Uh, Christian Javier gets the victory in relief, and the Astros sent the A's home. Uh, if you're the A's, how do you look at the season? Because you finally get over the hump of winning a playoff series uh, but then your division rival, who you took care of business against in the regular season, uh, sent you home packing pretty convincingly, I would say. You know, I don't even know. What to, you could look at this a, a couple of different ways. Is it the, It's not the best season, but you did some good. I actually feel like that team could have been a lot better. You had a bad year from Davis. You had a uh, down year from Simeon, but you're – I mean, you still made it far. You're doing something right. Uh, anyway, I, if this is their philosophy, this is what it's going to be for a while. So I would just keep doing what they're doing. I mean, if they're happy with it, they're happy with it. If they're expecting a World Series, they're going to need some more breaks, I guess. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what this team looks like if Simeon and Hendricks are gone. But Also, yeah. Chase, I have a naming question for you. A naming question? Sure. So, Yuli Goriel is nine years older than his brother, Lourdes. Why did Lourdes get the junior? I just, that, that, that just that, That's always interesting to me, that they named the younger son after the father. That's, that's, a, uh, that's a good not, question. Not really a question, just some thought. I feel like if, you, if you're going to go the junior route, you would kind of just want the junior thing taken care of up front. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. You would have to ask Mr. and Mrs. Guriel. Lord A. Senior? Lord A. Senior, yeah. No, I, I think this – and what we're talking about with the A's right now, this is kind of the crux of Moneyball in that, you know, Billy Bean in that front office, they can build a team that's really good in the regular season, become playoffs. You know, you hate to say it, superstars, uh, the Rays uh, – you know what, I'll even throw the Rays in there because Morden, Glass now, and Snell, I would say, are superstar pitchers. Superstars get you over the hump in the postseason, and they usually just don't have superstars. The, uh, the best player they've had in recent memory was Donaldson. And they traded him for pennies on the dollar. And then the year they went all in, they, they got Lester for Cespedes, which seemed at the time like a weird move and proved to be a bad move. Yep, got bounced in the wild card game by the Royals that year. Didn't even make Great it. Great game. That game should get played more often. All-time all baseball game for sure. Moving to the National League in your NLS, NL East matchup, Braves and the Marlins. Braves take care of business, send the Marlins home 3-0. Uh, game two was Ian Anderson for Sixto Sanchez. Ian Anderson blanked the Marlins into the sixth innings, and the Braves threw another playoff shutout in a 2-0 victory for a 2-0 lead in the division series Wednesday. Travis Darnold and Danzig Swanson each homered for the second straight day. Ian Anderson, three hits, struck out eight over five and two thirds. 
that was his second scoreless outing of the postseason. He had fanned nine and six scoreless against the Reds the week before. Uh, Nick Markakis, after Corey Dickerson reached on an error by Swanson, a shortstop to start the eighth. John Birdie sliced a high fly ball down the line that Markakis alertly plucked on one hop, uh, threw out Dickerson at second for the force when Dickerson was holding up. That was really the only interesting note of the game. Darnold's homer made him the first catcher for the Braves to hit multiple homers in one postseason since Brian McCann also had two in 2005, uh, which then led us to game three. Kyle Wright versus Pablo Lopez. Uh, rookie Kyle Wright dazzled for six innings in his postseason season debut six scoreless Braves win seven nothing for a three-game sweep and their first trip in the NLCS since 2001 uh it was Wright's first appearance since September 25th but three hits walked to career high seven strikeouts AJ Minter Jacob Webb and Shane Green finished the five hitter from then and Atlanta became the second team in baseball history to throw four shutouts in their first five playoff games joining the 1905 Giants and after two rounds huh that was a good Giants team Christy Mathewson. Uh, and after two rounds, the Braves have already pitched the most postseason franchise shutouts in franchise history, besting the 96 that, and 91 teams. That says a lot. Three. And, yeah, as you just said, that says a lot. Um, those were teams that had the big three, three Hall of Famers, at least in 96. Uh, one quick backtrack before we wrap up this series. I want to give a shout-out to the A's in game four. They became the first team in postseason history uh, to have their entire infield homer in a game. I thought that was pretty cool, at least. Um, but again, Braves-Marlins, I think it was another example. The better team won. Marlins were a great story all year. Overachieved. Um, but at the end of the day, especially once Marte got that, went down, wasn't available for the series, uh, this was the Braves series to win. Uh, my question is, though, the Braves have ridden a lot of strong outings from young pitching. I mean, all three of their pitchers under 27, Max Fried, the ace, Kyle Wright, Ian Anderson, uh, both rookies. Uh, do you think they have enough pitching to – at least put up a fight against the Dodgers, who took care of business sweeping the Padres three nothing. Oh, they'll put up a fight. They uh, that this this is not an easy series. Dodgers are favorites, um, and they should be favorites, and they will most likely win that series. But this Braves team, not one to be slept on. The pitching's been great. Uh, probably won't have four. Probably don't have four more shutouts in them. But between even if their pitching's good enough, the Braves team hits. That team hits. One through nine, they hit. And that's important. What happens? I mean, Travis Darnot is the second coming of Justin Turner. Mets non-tender him. The guy turns into a superstar elsewhere. Yeah, Mets love to do that. I, my, my, when I think on this series, I just think it's, I think it's a case of the Braves are miles ahead of the Marlins. If you're running the Marlins, do you consider this a fluke 60-game season? You got kind of hot. You I was about it. to ask you the same thing of coming into next year, what do you expect the Marlins to do? Um, it'll be interesting. I, I, I don't know if that offense, especially if they don't bring Marte back, holds up over 162 games. Um, but all that said, I think Alcantara, Sixto Sanchez, and Pablo Lopez, that's a very legit one, two, three. Uh, Jazz Chisholm on the offensive side, you know, good young talent. I just think it's a matter of the farm system still deep. It's just are the bats going to be enough? Because like you said, in 60 games, it was a little fluky. I mean, the bullpen, they were literally piecing together day by day during the COVID outbreak. Um, so I don't know. I, I think next year they're probably closer to a 500 team, but I could see them making a run at a wild card potentially. Are they re- I mean, the question is, are they ready to compete? And they're still, at, they're still a star player away, like a super-duper star player away, plus more pieces. No, they were certainly ahead of schedule this year. This, but I guess I'd still write it up to fluky 68 if those are the options. I mean, why, why doesn't a team like the Marlins just go all in and trade for Lindor? 
tell Jeet he's got to start spending some money. That would be my recommendation to the Marlins. Just sign, just go in, trade Lindor, trade for Lindor, bring back JT, and then just be ready to go with the young pitching. Sounds like a good plan if they could execute it. Uh, our other NL series. I know that's like a really easy you trade for the best player available and sign the best player available. But you know, they're not spending. There's no, no one on this team is making any money. If Jeter wants to, to keep up, if Jeter likes winning, if uh, his track record is any indication, or he does it an awful lot, um, you need to spend to remain competitive. And I think that they have their farm system still good good enough that they have the pieces to make a big trade if they were so inclined to do so. So looking at the other National League series, Dodgers knock out the Padres 3-0. Game two, Kershaw and Zach Davies. Uh, Cody Bellinger hit a home run and made what had to be the play of the postseason. Um, Dodgers won this game 6-5. Uh, Joe Kelly gets out of a Kenley Jansen jam with the bases loaded in the ninth inning. Uh, Corey Seager put the NL West champs to stay with a two-run double in the third. Uh, He scored on the first of Max Muncy's two RBI singles in the game. Uh, Bellinger hits a homer to make it 4-1. Kershaw, solid in this round, six strikeouts, no walks, over six innings to get the win. Allowed three earned runs, including back-to-back solo homers by Machado and Hosmer in the sixth inning. Uh, So he was good, not great, but the story from this game is – the Padres were down one with a runner on and two outs in the seventh when Tatis hit a towering drive to center. Bellinger runs nearly 100 feet while watching the ball, jumps and extends his glove over the eight-foot wall to make the grab. He said after the game, I just kind of turned around as fast as I could, got to the fence and saw that it was probable. So I decided to time up the jump, and that's how it worked out. Uh, Bruce Star Gratterall, the rookie who's on the mound, pretty much loses his mind, slings his glove and cap into the crowd. Uh, Machado tells him to fuck off, which Machado, of all people, you know, going against the unwritten rules of the game. That is the pot calling the kettle black to the extreme. Uh, Muncy pretty much tells him, get the fuck back in the dugout. Mookie Betts waves them away. Uh, but this was the play of the postseason. Machado, the best part then, gets up against Gratterall, uh, hits a liner right up the middle, uh, which is snared for a force out at first. Uh, I mean, with Bellinger, this guy just shows, I mean, look, the bat hasn't been there, and I know he happened homer in this game, but it just shows how great of an all-around player he was you know, he makes his game-saving catch at center field. And it also begs the question, you know, did the Dodgers screw up having this guy at first base for a few years, given how much of a freak athlete he is? Seems like it. Uh, I'm just reading some articles. Now. You know what You know what bit of these free agents we talked about with the qualifying offers I like a lot? I know I got super off track. But um, the Phillies should spend stupid money on uh, Liam Hendricks. I mean, the bullpen was difference. Literally, the difference between them being a playoff and not being a playoff team this year. So, yes, I agree with that. That would be. I'd put that. I'd. I'd a lot of that one for sure. That seems like a lot. So, who do you think though was in the wrong here? Was it Gratterall for losing his mind in the seventh inning of a regular season game celebrating, or Machado for calling him out and also losing his mind in turn? I mean, I. Anytime you're losing your mind, you're probably in the wrong. Uh, Machado's got to chill because of his track record would be the short answer. So game two, tempers are high. You think maybe the Padres are going to come out firing in game three. Uh, Adrian Morin, who had 21 years old, uh, he was the fifth youngest pitcher to ever start an elimination game at 21. He allowed allowed three runs uh, the last – batter facing he faced was Corey Seager uh, where Tatis made a big error 
uh, that allowed the game to kind of get out of hand. Dodgers win this game 12-3. Will Smith set a Dodger postseason record with five hits. I believe he became the first catcher in baseball history with five hits in a postseason game. Jack Peterson, two-run single. Uh, Justin Turner's ribby single that made it 3-2 was his 64th career postseason hit, breaking a tie with Steve Garvey for the most in Dodgers postseason history. Will Smith, ribby single in the fourth, two-run double in the ninth off of the 11th Padres pitcher. How many? What would Will Smith, the baseball player, have to do for his name, for me not to think of the actor every time I say his name? He would have to be Johnny Bench to bring this all full circle. Ooh, Chase, man. Well done, well done, well done. Um, Bet scored three times, sack fly. Urias comes out of the pen, third Dodgers pitcher, struck out six, walked run, and allowed an under-and run over five innings. Uh, it's interesting, San Diego had a 2-1 lead on this game. Jake Cromworth walks after Will Myers was intentionally walked to load the base with two outs. Trent Grisham, Ruby single, but from there, the Dodgers clamped down. We'll get to the NLCS matchup in a second, but I think we can all agree this was a massively successful season for the Padres. We all thought they were going to be good. Nobody thought that was second-best record in the National League. Uh, Clevenger is getting the arm looked at again, so a little bit of concern going into the offseason, but nothing major. That core is going to be together for next year. I think Trevor Bauer is going to end up with the Padres. I just think California kid, money to spend, sick young team. They love to be exciting, which is Bauer's MO. And they hate the unwritten rules. They hate the unwritten rules. Um, but what do you think the Padres' ceiling is next year? Do you think they can catch the Dodgers in the West, or they're looking at best, you know, that four seed and the top wild card if it's a five-game play, five-team playoff again? Uh, with Bauer, they could catch the Dodgers absolutely. Yeah, uh, but without Bauer or without a serious upgrade to that roster, they'll be behind the Dodgers again. Either way, if you're a Padres fan, this was the first time that you've been excited about your team in a really long time. And, uh, you know, the young offensive core isn't going anywhere. Machado bounces back. He'll finish in the top five of the MVP season. Obviously, Tatis needs no explanation. So good time to be a Padres fan all in all. Uh, which brings us to our final four, the ALCS. I mean, we mentioned the Rays. Astros game, game two, that is 3-1 Rays in the bottom of the first or bottom of the seventh right now. But how we got to game two, uh, game one, after throwing 29 pitches and recording the last six outs in the Rays game five win over the Yankees in the ALDS, Diego Castillo comes in last night uh, with the Rays holding on to a one-run lead in the eighth. The Astros have the bases loaded, and Castillo promptly gets Guriel to ground into an inning-ending double play on a 97-mile-per-hour sinker. First pitch, Rays win 2-1 at Petco Park. Castillo's five-out save was the longest save in Rays postseason history. Um, Blake Snell gets a start. Five solid innings, allows one earned run. Um, on the other side, Framber Valdez, usual solid self, six innings, two earned, struck out eight. If you're wondering, the offensive contribution, Randy Rosarina, the Cuban Mike Trout, his fourth homer in six postseason games. Mike Zunino hit a decisive RBI uh, in the sixth inning. Jose Altuve homered off of Snell in the second at bat of the game. That was the two-run score. Um, I, this was just a good old-fashioned baseball game. Had a little bit of everything. Pitching looked good. Uh, kind of what I expected out of these two teams, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm rooting for Houston at this point. It's uh, a so tough loss. But – I mean, we're going to have a lot. I think we're going to have a lot of low scoring games that the Rays sneak out. Uh, I guess I'm still going to have to stick with my Astros pick just because I've been doing it all year. But I do trust the Rays a lot more in close games than the Astros. If the Rays hold on and win this game and go up 2 0, what is your prediction for this series? Uh, tomorrow's pitching matchup is going to probably. My prediction is I'm going to bet the Astros to win the series on Bovada down 2 0. 
I think I, I'm going to go Rays in six. Um, I think tomorrow Christian Javier and probably Jose Arquiti out of the pen. I think they get the job done against the bullpen and Ryan Yarborough is the long man. I think game four glass now takes it home against um, what will probably be Zach Greinke as long as his arm is okay. Uh, game five, I like the Astros to stay alive against whoever the Rays throw out, and then I think Snell takes it home in game six. So my prediction is that the Rays are your American League champion, uh, which brings us to the National League. And who I'll go Houston in seven, but uh, you, that, that was a very articulate case you just made. for Rays. Which then brings us to the National League and who the Rays will be, in theory, playing in the World Series. Dodgers. Astros. Well, I said for me, in theory. Dodgers versus Braves, one and two seeds in the National League. Tonight you have Walker Bueller versus Max Fried, Kershaw against Ian Anderson in game two tomorrow. I think these are the two best teams in the National League. I agree. I agree. Even though the Braves ended up as the three? No, the Braves ended up as the two. Yeah, they the Dodgers had a better record. I think the Braves are a better team. Uh, and I really, really want to pick the Braves here. I really do. Well, well, hold on. We're gonna pick. We're gonna pick the game tonight first on Bavada. So that is going to be, as I said, Max Fried plus one and a half, minus one fifty five, plus one twenty four. Walker Bueller minus one and a half, plus one thirty five, minus one forty four. Uh, it should be noted, I think, for what it's worth, that Walker Bueller has not made it out of the fourth inning in the postseason this year, uh, but has also never struck out less than eight guys in a postseason start. So two things. To consider there, uh, who do you like in game one tonight? I'm going to go. I'm going to go Dodgers minus 144, but in what's going to be a one to two run game. I, I think the Braves get it done tonight. Taking Braves money line plus 124. I think the Braves win tonight, and then you see a million headlines tomorrow, uh, calling for Dave Roberts' job, saying this guy for some reason Kershaw get blamed for this Walker Bueller start. <laughs> um, but I do think the Braves win game one. Braves money line. I think ultimately from here, though, this series, I'm also going to say that this is a six-game series. I'm going to go uh, Dodgers in six. I mean, like you said, the Braves lineup, absolutely fantastic. I just think, you know, in, in these smaller series, the Braves can get away with not having many arms in the rotation. But when it comes down to it, seven-game series, you need all the arms you can get. And the Dodgers have that in spade. I mean, Kershaw, Bueller. Dustin May, Urias, Tony Gonsolin hasn't even pitched in the postseason yet, and he was a stud in the regular season. Uh, so I like Dodgers in six. And what's going to set up a real interesting World Series matchup between the Dodgers and the Rays? Uh, the two teams, I would say, are the two deepest teams in baseball. Yeah, I guess I still take the Dodgers to win the series. Um, I'm sticking with that as well. That was my pick from the get-go. And I'm, I'm going to stick with Dodgers-Astros. I've been saying it all year and until I'm forced to change. I will not be changing. All right. I, I do like this Braves team a lot. I think this one goes seven also. I think the Braves, the big thing is going to be win or lose this offseason. You have to bring Marcelo Zuna back. Because pitching-wise, you're going to be fine. You get those three guys and Mike Soroka back in the rotation, you're rocking and rolling. You take Ozuna's bat out of that lineup, they're going to struggle. Yep, I agree. I would just think I, – I just think this is – the. Man, I could really see a nice Braves Astros, uh, a nice Braves, a nice Braves Astros World Series. Wouldn't that be something? I have one other thought, real quick, on the Braves in general. Do you know? I mean, can you think of a team that has hit more on one-year deals 
back-to-back years than the Braves with Donaldson and Ozuna? I mean, not off, not off. Yeah, I have to look. I'd have to study the tapes. There was that one year when Baltimore signed. I think they got Trumbo and Nelson Cruz on one-year deals, and they led the league in homers back-to-back years. I'm not sure if I got the contracts right, but didn't that happen? Or something like that. That would be uh, definitely not the Angels. All their one-year deals are doo doo. Bad. The Yanks too low. Maybe too low. <laughs> maybe too low. Probably not, but maybe. Uh, all right, that's all I got. When we're talking next week, we will be talking about the 2020 World Series ending what has been a crazy year in baseball. Really? Not necessarily. No, we uh, – ah, yeah, unless that Braves game goes set, series goes seven. Well, I guess we can hold off until we can do an official World Series preview pod. We will hold off so that when you hear us next week, you will hear some kind of a World Series preview with the matchup set. Um, but all that said, before we get there, any concluding thoughts for this week's show? Get your flu shot, and Chase, basketball question for you. Okay. Now that LeBron has his fourth ring, who's the GOAT? Can I present a third option that I feel like gets overlooked too much? Kareem? Give me Valid Kareem. option. Um, Was it Kareem? I read an article from Zach Lowe this morning that very much swayed me to the LeBron camp um, just because of how much – defensively the rules favor defenses that LeBron played in three titles, four different teams, nine titles in 10 different years or nine appearances in 10 years. My, my point would be, you know what? I, I, this is, this is a worthy like discussion. Did you watch game? Did you watch game six last night? I did. I thought that it was the first time watching sports post coronavirus or mid coronavirus that not having fans in attendance really impacted. You think for the heat? No, just for me. As a fan watching, there was something missing from that moment that I think baseball will not have because they'll have fans at the World Series. But having no one in that game for the clinching, for the finals clinching game, uh, it felt off. Yeah, I also just think, and this will be my last point, I, I just think the teams, I think when LeBron took care of business in the finals, for the most part, he took care of business. And I think – you know, Stockton and Malone were great, but I think the quality of competition that LeBron faced in the finals overall was much higher than what Jordan faced. That's an interesting case that we'll go on about after the show. Um, my concluding thought will be watch some baseball. There's going to be football like nine different days coming up. So that is cool. And um, just keep on keeping on. That's it. Stay Good positive. Mafia. Stay positive. Uh, With Bryce Holden, my name is Chase Midorski, and this is the Underdog Sports Baseball Show. (laughs) 